Hello, Darklings, and welcome to the Nocturnal Mysteries Podcast, a show about the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, and things that go bump in the night. I am your host, Jenny. Please come and join me. Sit down and place your fingers on the planchette, and let's jump right into this nocturnal mystery. Listener, in more recent times, mental health has become one of the primary focuses in our daily lives. We are constantly monitoring our mental health and are taught to be mindful of when we are struggling. Counseling and therapy are widely available, as well as medication to help us manage our symptoms. But it was not always like this. It is important to note that early colonists in North America did not have any knowledge or understanding of mental illness. When people displayed behaviors that were viewed as troubling or unconventional, they were often accused of being possessed by demons or the devil. Modern psychologists have studied historical documents from the Salem Witch Trials of 1692 and determined that many who were accused of being witches were likely just mentally ill. Others were displaying normal behavior that just didn't fit in with conventions of the time. An example of this would be a woman wanting to be more independent. Even after the Salem witch trials ended, the treatment of the mentally ill did not improve. Some were cared for by family members who had no idea how to help them. Symptoms of mental illness were considered embarrassing and shameful to families, so many people would be locked away and excluded from society. If the individual had no family to care for them, they were locked away in a prison with violent offenders. In the 1770s, the first facilities to house the mentally ill were built. They were modeled after prisons and sadly, the patients were treated no better than they would if they were in a prison. There was no effort to treat or rehabilitate the residents. The main point of these institutions was to house the mentally ill away from the eyes of society. At this time, the belief was that there was no cure for mental illness. In the 1800s, things finally started to change thanks to the help of a woman named Dorothea Dix. In 1841, she visited a jail in Cambridge and saw for herself how the mentally ill inmates were being treated. They were left naked and chained to stone walls in cells with no ventilation. After this jail visit, she became a fierce advocate for change. She traveled throughout the U.S. and Europe and Asia, touring prisons and exposing the treatment of the mentally ill. In 1848, the first state hospital for the mentally ill opened in Trenton, New Jersey, thanks in big part to Dorothea. During her career, Dorothea worked closely with Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride, a medical doctor who designed facilities for the mentally ill. He had devised a plan called the Kirkbride Plan that he would describe as a humane building method. He believed that the environment of the facility could be the most effective way to treat mentally ill patients. He believed patients should have more freedom instead of being locked in cells or rooms. They needed control over how they spent their day. 
the freedom to roam, and access to activities to stimulate their minds. They should also have access to plenty of sunshine and fresh air. By making these improvements to building methods, he believed that mentally ill patients could be cured. His building designs included long hallways, tall windows, 12-foot ceilings, and cross ventilation to let in a natural breeze. The Kirkbride plan influenced the construction of over 300 facilities in North America, with one of these facilities being the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The wings of the facility were designed in a staggered formation in order to give each space the most fresh air and natural light possible. Patients would each have their own room, providing them with some privacy and making the asylum feel more like a home than a hospital. The structure borrowed concepts from the Gothic and Tudor revival styles of architecture. The property was located in a rural area with everything needed to be completely self-sustaining. Construction on the building started in late 1858 in what would later be known as West Virginia. This continued right up until the start of the Civil War in April of 1861. By June, all work not directly related to the war was ordered to be stopped, including construction. The building would sit in the early stages of its construction. The wing furthest to the south was completed, and the basement and the foundation for the large central structure were also nearly complete. The Union soldiers turned the partially constructed asylum into what would become known as Camp Tyler. By the time the war ended the following year, West Virginia had been admitted as a U.S. state and one of the first orders of business was to complete the asylum. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum opened its doors in 1864 but construction continued for almost two more decades until the building was completed. The facility was originally built to house 250 patients who would each have their own room. The property had everything needed for the asylum to be self-sustaining. There was a vegetable garden, a working farm, dairy cows, a gas well, and a cemetery. A coal mine and water reserve were nearby, and all the clothes, mattresses, fabrics, and furniture were locally made. In 1863, an increase in mental health diagnoses led to the hospital admitting more patients than it could handle. 500 more people were added to the already full hospital and the asylum started to struggle to keep up with the amount of patients and the care required. Conditions started to decline rapidly. Patients were crammed together with four or five people in one room that was meant to only fit one person. By 1938, the asylum was over six times its capacity. Patients began to take advantage of the situation and were completely out of control. Food supplies were running low as the facility was only able to grow enough to feed 300. And the facility even started to use hallways for patient rooms. 
The overcrowding of the asylum was caused by more than just not enough space. While plenty of the patients actually suffered from some sort of mental illness, a lot of those admitted were medical reasons, such as asthma, tuberculosis, and rabies. Even stranger, others were wives who were insubordinate to their husbands or sufferers of indigestion. At the peak of the 1950s, the hospital contained 2,600 patients. Meant to house only 250, this was an immense overcrowding, leading to fighting and a general sense of apathy that ran rampant throughout the corridors. Patients were forced to sleep on the floor and in freezing rooms with no furniture or heat. Windows were coated in mold so thick it blocked the natural light and the wallpaper was peeling off the walls. When patients complained or bothered the staff, they were locked in isolation cells. If they still didn't comply, they were then chained to walls, with some of them being left in chains for months at a time. Isolation was so terrible that patients would do just about anything to get out of it. One story about a former boxer who suffered from head injuries during his career that left him violent and emotionless attempted to beat down the metal door that isolated him. He ended up ripping the door off its hinges, leaving visible dents in the steel. When he finally got the door off, he handed it to one of the nurses and calmly returned to his room. Orderlies also locked patients in confinement cribs or Utica cribs. These were long and narrow boxes, only about 15 to 30 inches high, with open slats along the top and sides. Once locked inside, the patient was trapped and didn't have enough room to even sit up slightly. If a patient was violent, loud, or just not doing what they were told, they could be locked in a crib for hours or days at a time. When they were finally let out, some patients had difficulty walking or were completely nonverbal, which the workers would consider a success. Restraint chairs were used to control excessively violent patients. They would be left in these chairs for hours or days without food or water, and they were often shoved in a corner and forgotten about, leaving them defenseless against torture from other patients or staff. The therapies that were practiced in the asylum were considered humane and effective by the standards of the time. During hydrotherapy, patients would be completely immersed in water for hours or even days at a time. Depending on the condition being treated, the water was either kept hot or ice cold. Bloodletting, a practice that dated back to ancient Egyptians, was still common as well. During this process, large veins and arteries were severed to drain a patient's blood. Another common treatment method among doctors of the time was induced seizures. Electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy is one of the most well-known early treatments for mental illness. During this procedure, an electrical current is sent through the brain using an electroconvulsive therapy machine to induce seizures. This was frequently used to treat schizophrenia and depression. Seizures could also be caused by administering high doses of chemicals causing patients to experience extreme panic and then terror, followed by a violent seizure. Insulin shock therapy was used to drop a patient's blood sugar to zero to induce daily comas and cause seizures. In 1935, 
a breakthrough treatment for mental illness was introduced. The lobotomy. The lobotomy was a surgical technique that partially severed the frontal lobe from the deeper parts of the brain. Many believed that this experimental procedure could cure even the worst symptoms of mental illness. Dr. Walter Freeman popularized the procedure and brought it to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, where he conducted lobotomies for $25 per patient and encouraged crowds to watch as if it were a theatrical presentation. Almost all patients who underwent the procedure were completely altered, often unable to provide even basic self-care, and many others died during the lobotomy. Lobotomies were horrific, brutal, and all too frequently ended or irreversibly changed lives. In the United States alone, about 50,000 lobotomies were done on patients of all ages. Dr. Freeman performed about 3,500 of those himself. Walter Freeman eventually developed his own lobotomy technique, an even more extreme and dangerous technique called the ice pick lobotomy, or transorbital lobotomy. He was inspired to create this technique when he saw an ice pick in his kitchen drawer. He claimed that this was a simple, effective approach that can be done anywhere, by anyone, in a matter of minutes, by using a surgical pick, a thin pointed rod that looks like an ice pick. The rod was inserted into the patient's eye socket and then into the brain. Once inserted, the end of the rod was struck with a hammer to sever the connective tissue in the frontal lobe of the brain. Like the traditional lobotomy, this method caused permanent physical and cognitive damage for many patients as well as a number of deaths. But Dr. Freeman was never perturbed. He continued to give demonstrations to live audiences to show how easy and effective it was, and he continued to perform ice pick lobotomies on asylum patients for years. By the mid-50s, many doctors had started treating mental illness with newly developed antipsychotic drugs instead of lobotomies and other barbaric treatment methods. However, within the asylum walls, Dr. Freeman was free to continue performing lobotomies whenever he saw fit. Over 4,000 lobotomies were performed at the asylum, and many previously fully functioning patients were left with permanent brain damage. Between the overcrowding in the facility and the barbaric treatment the patients were receiving, it's no surprise that they continued to revolt. The patients turned to violence and started attacking the orderlies, nurses, doctors, and even each other. There were multiple cases of patients committing murders and assaults. Many employees reported being attacked on the job and female staff members were sexually assaulted by patients multiple times. One night, one of the nurses on duty went missing. When she didn't come back, her co-workers assumed she must have quit. But two months later, her dead body was found at the bottom of an abandoned staircase. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum 
first commissioned in the early 1850s, was forcibly closed in 1994 due to changes in the treatment of mental illness and the physical deterioration of the building. The property was left abandoned. There is a great deal of paranormal activity here, and stories of spirits haunting the grounds started even decades before the asylum was closed. Throughout the years, thousands of patients were admitted to the facility, some already experiencing severe mental health symptoms while others were driven mad by the living conditions inside the asylum. 2,000 former patients were buried in the cemetery on the property, while many more were claimed by family members and buried elsewhere. After just a few decades of the asylum being in operation, reports of unusual strange shadows and sounds were normal. Visitors and staff would report seeing gurneys rolling through the empty hallways and ghostly figures lurking in the stairways. Balls of light floated in and out of patient rooms, and there were many reports of spirits dressed in white watching the patients sleep. One doctor even claimed that a spirit followed her home and hasn't left her alone since. These occurrences caused many employees to leave and never return. The oldest section of the building, which was used as a barracks during the Civil War, is inhabited with the spirits of the soldiers who resided there. The most terrifying spirits are those of the murderers and rapists who died in the asylum and had their bodies buried on the property. These spirits are said to wander the grounds late at night in search of victims. Screams of terror can still be heard coming from the electroshock room, where hundreds of patients underwent the horrific treatment. Hysterical laughter, moaning, and heavy breathing have all been heard coming from empty patient rooms, but is most common in the rooms where patients were locked in confinement cribs or restraint chairs. Banging sounds, slamming doors, and random screams are all common, and visitors often reported becoming overcome by strange emotions and the feeling that they're being watched. In the halls of the Civil War Wing, the restless spirit of a former patient named Ruth still resides today. Before her death, Ruth hated men. If she saw a male staff member or fellow patient, she would scream and throw things at them. After her death, men who have walked through these halls have reported being shoved against the wall by a powerful, invisible force. Reports of an eerie whistling sound have also been made. The most haunted area of the facility is said to be Ward 2, located on the second floor. This is an area where multiple violent events have occurred in the past. In one of the bathrooms, a patient stabbed a man 17 times. The man managed to crawl away from the bathroom, leaving a trail of blood across the floor as he dragged himself to the nurse's station where he promptly died. Another room had two suicides occur there. Both patients sadly hung themselves from the curtain rod. Ghostly figures are often seen wandering in and out of these rooms, and those who have seen them report immediately being overwhelmed by feelings of despair and rage. 
a voice has been recorded in this wing using electronic voice phenomena, or EVP, and the voice said get out. On the third floor, there is one room with so much negative energy, it can feel almost impossible to even enter. This is known as the bedpost murder room. One night, two patients, David and Joe, attempted to hang another patient named Dean multiple times. They took his bed sheets off his bed, tied them around his neck, pulled one end over a pipe and lifted him up, strangling him. When this failed, they laid him on the floor, placed the metal post of the bed on the side of his head, and jumped on the bed until the post crushed his skull. The spirit of one of the killers, although no one is sure which one, is now trapped in the room surrounded by the feelings of terror and dread that he caused. Also residing on the third floor is a nurse named Elizabeth and a patient named Big Jim. Big Jim was a smoker, and some say if you offer him a cigarette, he may communicate with you. Jim and another spirit, a poker player named Eddie, have been known to interfere with flashlights, open doors, and push gurneys down the halls. In the bathrooms on the upper floor, a murderer named Slewfoot killed multiple people. No one knows how he got this nickname, but what they do know was that he was a very violent man. He was later murdered himself, and his ghost is now said to roam the halls, banging on pipes and slamming doors and windows. Some have even heard the sound of Slewfoot's deranged laughter, and there are even recordings that claim to have caught this on tape. Sadly, some of the spirits residing in the asylum are those of children. There was a girl named Lily who was born in the asylum during its early years of operation. Since her mother was never released, Lily spent her entire life living there. When she was just nine years old, she was diagnosed with pneumonia and tragically died. Her spirit has stayed in the asylum all this time to be close to her mother. Dressed in all white, she sits in a room on the fourth floor surrounded by old toys, waiting for someone to come and play with her. Those who have walked by the room have seen balls rolling across the floor, toys moving around, and a music box playing on its own. If someone steps into the room, they can hear the sound of Lily either laughing or crying. The fourth floor is also home to several other spirits. A translucent black mass has been seen floating through the walls aimlessly. There is another spirit called the Creeper who crawls slowly along the floor looking for people to pull to the ground. The spirit of a soldier named Jacob seems to be trapped on the fourth floor still searching the halls for his fellow soldiers. All throughout the asylum there have been reports of dark shadows, objects moving on their own, disembodied voices and cries, bangs on the walls, breaking glass, and a multitude of other phenomena. The rooms used most for isolation tend to have violent energies attached to them, with visitors reporting being pushed or scratched, as well as hearing disembodied voices saying get me out of here. 
1990, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It is the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America and the second largest in the world. After the facility was closed in 1994, the property was abandoned and the facility sat empty for years. All the equipment, furniture, and records were left behind. It looked like they just walked out the door, never to return. In 2007, the building was auctioned off and was purchased by a man named Joe Jordan for $1.5 million. He immediately began restoring the facility. The plot of land is 666 acres and there are 13 buildings, which many people believe confirms that the property is cursed. Joe's daughter, Rebecca Jordan Gleason, now operates the facility and it is open to the public for guided historical and paranormal tours. During these tours, many visitors will often leave items like coins, toys, cigarettes, and cigars as offerings for the spirits. There are also overnight tours available, but not for the faint at heart. To date, the central section of the building has been fully restored to include a museum. One of the patient wards has also been restored, but the remaining wards are untouched since the building's abandonment in 1994. The most common visitors are professional ghost hunters and those who study the paranormal. The asylum has been featured on many paranormal TV shows as well. It is said that if you visit the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, you can feel the presence of hundreds of spirits who have lived and died there many of them still tormented by the pain and fear they felt in their final hours. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Nocturnal Mysteries podcast. I will be back in two weeks' time with a new episode for you. If you would like to keep up with the show, you can follow me on Instagram, at Nocturnal Mysteries Pod, on TikTok at Nocturnal Mysteries, or on X at Noct Mist Pod. After the episode releases, make sure to check out the show's TikTok as I usually post a video with pictures of the site and any more information that I can find. If you have anything you would like to hear me cover on the show, please don't hesitate to reach out on social media and let me know. Also, I am honored to be a part of Bad Secret Media with one of my personal favorite podcasts, The Secret Levels Podcast. You can go to badsecretmedia.com to find all the information on all the shows under the Bad Secret Media umbrella. If you would like to support the show, the best thing you can do is rate or review the show wherever you listen to it. This will help others find the show and share in the spooky with us. All episodes are researched and written by myself and edited by the man behind the mysteries, the show's executive producer, Toby Von Doom. The show would not be what it is without all the hard work he does with all of his editing magic. You can find him on social media at Toby Von Doom. Until next time, stay curious, stay weird, stay kind, and before leaving the board, Don't forget to always 
say goodbye.